First Timothy 5, we called, last, last Wednesday, we called Wisdom for the Church. First uh, Timothy 6, which is the final chapter of the book, uh, we're, we're calling this Wisdom for Timothy. And here, Paul is going to kind of conclude this amazing first letter by giving some, I guess, fatherly advice and otherwise a kick in the pants for Timothy because as we talked about last week, Timothy struggled with confrontation. He struggled with people who oppose things. He, he's kind of a can't-we-all-just-get-along kind of guy. And so we're going to be covering a lot of different little topics today in 1 Timothy chapter 6. So we're just going to kind of work our way through the chapter. We're not going to try to make a, a real fancy outline. We're just going to go through the scriptures, uh, share a little bit of what they mean, and hopefully uh, this is going to be a blessing for you as we go through this. So let's, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 6. By the way, it's not June 8th. I forgot to update last week. So it's June 15th. If some of you uh, very detail-oriented people are worried about that, I do know. In chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Paul is going to give Timothy instructions for slaves. All right? He says, Let all those who are under a yoke as bondservants, which is a slave, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So, just to share with you a little bit, it is amazing how much the Scripture talks about slavery. And one of the things, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, slavery was a horrible institution back then. In fact, it was even worse in Roman times than it was for American slaves. It was, it was a terrible time. I mean, the slaves had absolute authority. There was no uh, problem if they killed one of their slaves. In fact, uh, if, if a girl would drop something, uh, they could kill her, and there would be no penalty, no even question towards the master. And with this terrible institution of slavery going on, Jesus or Paul or Peter, never once speaks against the institution of slavery. All of the teaching in the New Testament is how slaves should live as Christian slaves and how masters should live as Christians ma Christian masters. And I, I want you to see something of Paul's strategy. I don't think Paul had any love for slavery. In fact, when we read the book of Philemon, it's clear his preference would be for slaves to be free. But Paul's strategy was not to try to change the structures of society. Paul's strategy was to change people in society with the power of the gospel. And so what does he say to Timothy about teaching slaves? Well, he goes in. Oh, let me just, uh, this is kind of an overview of the chapter. If you want to write these down. Uh, these are the major sections of 1 Timothy chapter 6. And 1 through 2, we'll look at teaching for slaves. Uh, 3 through 10, we're going to talk about the dangers of false teachers. 
in 11 through 16, Paul gives this amazing, very personal challenge to his young son of the faith, Timothy. In 17 through 19, we're going to look at instructions for the wealthy. And 20 through 21, as Paul closes, we see this dad to son message of Paul saying, hey, Timothy, this is the final thing I want to say to you. Uh, As you can see, there's no real organizing principle around 1 Corinthians 6. It's just kind of Paul's scattered thoughts as he's concluding the book. Um, This slide gives you all of the places where the New Testament talks about slavery. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7.21 is the only place where Paul says, hey, if you have an opportunity to be free as a slave, go ahead and take that opportunity. But in Philemon, when Onesimus, the slave, ran away, Paul's instruction to him was, go back to your master. Now, he did ask Philemon, who was the master to Onesimus, hey, if you would be willing, I would really appreciate it if you'd set him free so he could come back and serve me in the faith. So, but everywhere else, it's basically slaves obey your masters and masters treat your slaves with dignity and respect and be kind to them, be fair with them. But you can see how important this is because approximately 80% of first century Christians were slaves. That's why this is such an important topic. Most of the people who made up the early church were slaves. That's why they worshiped at approximately 4 a.m. Because they had to worship before their work started. They didn't get any days off. They didn't have any Sabbath days or Sundays off or weekends off or anything like this. So let's look at what Paul has to say. Principle number one, and this is in verse one, Paul says, slaves, I want you to regard your master. And the interpretation is slaves to master. But I think by application, we can legitimately look at this and say, okay, this is also employer to employer in today's world. Regard your master or your employer as worthy of honor. This is really important. It doesn't say if he's honorable. In fact, in other places, it says not only those who are fair, but those who are harsh and unreasonable. And you guys, this cuts against the grain of our society so intensely, doesn't it? I mean, I just, I remember working as a youth and it seemed to be the popular thing to do to bellyache against your employer, to talk about what a creep he was or how unfair he was or how he should be paying you more or how he's not treating you right. But, but Paul says, look, if you're a slave... And you want to live out the gospel as a slave. Here's what you need to do. You need to regard your master, your employer, as worthy of honor. What's the motive? The motive is so that the name of God and the teaching will not be reviled. In Colossians 3, Paul says essentially the same thing in that and putting it in the positives, that if you're obedient to your master, you are bringing glory to God. Now, here's something I want you to see before we move on. You know, we talk so much about living out the gospel. Here is a simple, practical thought of how you live out the gospel. How do you live in a way that brings glory to God? Well, you regard your master 
as worthy of all honor. Well, what do you do if you have a Christian master? Uh, Do you go, hey, you're a believer. You ought to set me free because we're brothers in Christ. I shouldn't be your slave. No, Paul says, if your boss is a believer, treat him or her with even more respect. In other words, you don't try to make yourself equal with them. You treat them with even more respect and you actually work like crazy to serve them better. Now, here, this is really important because a lot of times if you're a Christian and you're working for a Christian, you'll think, hey, uh, you ought to give me some breaks because we're brothers in Christ. Paul takes it the exact opposite. He says, if you're working for a Christian, you ought to treat them with more respect. You ought to work even harder for them. What's the motive? The motive is very simple. Your service, if you're serving a believer, if you're working for a boss, even though he's mid-level management or something, you're making him look good is actually serving the kingdom of God because he can be a blessing even if he's just a manager and there's people above him. He can be a blessing to those above them and people again begin to regard the gospel as doing something great. All right, so we're going to move on because we've got a lot of stuff to cover. So let's go on and look at false teachers, okay? Verses 3 through 10. I love Paul. He's so subtle when it comes to false teachers. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissensions, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of great gain. So let's look at the characteristics of false teachers. Number one, they're conceited. And by the way, we're not talking only about Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and Christian scientists and people out there. False teachers that Paul is primarily concerned with are false teachers in the church. We have to be careful of this because people will come in. We had a guy come into our church and he was really nice looking. He had a really good looking wife. And it was interesting because whenever he would teach People come up to me, oh, he's so deep. What did he say? I couldn't understand anything he said, but he was so deep. And, and one of the interesting things about false teachers is they will present how smart they are and how deep their teaching is and how you guys really can't understand it because it's so deep. They're conceited. And the word conceited, it, it, it means puffed up. And the idea of, of puffed up, you look at a, a balloon that doesn't have any air in it. It just doesn't look very impressive. You blow it up with air. Wow, there's this big balloon. And that's what a conceited person is, is a person who, who's full of a bunch of hot air. So they're conceited. Paul says they understand nothing. Now, this is so interesting because it's exactly the opposite of what they present to you. What they present to you is that they have this deep, amazing understanding, and they can talk an hour. And I actually listened to some tapes of this guy because we started getting reports of 
And, and what's so amazing, people just be swept along with this guy. They would come out of his Sunday school class just mesmerized by what he was teaching. And so I listened to a couple of tapes. And I realized, this guy isn't saying anything. He's just using a lot of, and he, he was huge on the big words. Boy, he was great on, on saying big words. And he's great on saying these long, complex paragraphs. And nobody knew what he was saying. And the fact of the matter is, really, when push comes to shove, he didn't understand anything. They love controversy and dissension. One of the interesting things about false teachers is they'll always have a new interpretation for a scripture that nobody's ever thought of. And you go, wow, how did you get that out of that verse? And the answer to the question is, they made it up. That's how they got it out of that verse. The final thing about false teachers is they want to profit from the gospel. And I want to tell you something. If you see a pastor who is rejoicing in his wealth, he likes to have the limos drive him to the church. He loves to have the multiple houses. Uh, I can pretty much almost guarantee you you're talking about a false teacher at that point. True men of God do not want to profit from the gospel. True men of God want to build the kingdom of God. And when you see obscene wealth in the hands of the ministers of the gospel, you've you've got to take a step back. That isn't a sign of their success. It's a a sign that they're, quite frankly, a false teacher. Now, let's look at what Paul says. He says in verse 5 that they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. What is he saying? He's saying that false teachers like to think of their religion, their teaching, their, their ministry as something that they can get rich of rich off of. Now, this kind of sends Paul off on a little bit of a a tangent, which is pretty cool. And he wants to tell us something. He says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when it's accompanied by contentment. What Paul is saying is the gain of the gospel is not material. The gain of godliness is a life that is blessed by God. I want to tell you something. I, I love my life. It's not comfortable. It's not easy. But I love the family that God has given me. I love the ministries that God has given me. I feel like I'm the wealthiest man on the face of the earth, not money-wise, but in terms of blessing of life that God has given to me. Paul says godliness is a means of great gain when it's accompanied by contentment. Let me just give you a couple of scriptures on money here. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and dust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Interesting what Jesus is saying. The reason we shouldn't store up treasures on earth is it's a bad investment. No matter what you do to store up treasures on earth, there's going to come a day... And this is so weird. It doesn't matter if you're Bill Gates. doesn't matter if you're Tim Cook. doesn't matter if you're Steve Jobs. At the end of your life, guess how much money you're going to have? Nothing. So storing up treasures on earth is just flat out a bad investment. 
Jesus goes on, he says, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break into steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to be. Now, this is why we can assume that guys who are getting rich off the gospel are, in fact, false teachers. Because if you're getting rich, it's because you're aiming to get rich. And if you're getting rich off the gospel, it's because your heart is given to this world, not to the kingdom of God. What is contentment? Contentment is that amazing sense where you realize that everything you have is from God. Now, let's just, uh, if you're back, still with me in Timothy, let's just read verses 7 and 8. Paul says, For we have brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of this world. That's where the old phrase, you can't take it with you, came from. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now, think of this. Paul is saying, look, if I have something to eat together today, and I have a roof over my head, I'm content. Now, watch this. What happens if your definition of need now becomes food and covering and everything else is an over and above blessing of God. Do you realize how grateful you'd be? Wow, I don't just have food and covering. I actually have a car to get around with. Thank you, God. Wow, I don't just have food and covering. I was able to take my family on a vacation. God, thank you. You see... It's not wrong to enjoy those things of this world. What is wrong is to think of them as your needs. Those are over and above gifts from God. And so if you set the baseline of content at food and covering and you start thanking God for everything above that that he gives you, boy, you're going to be thanking God all day long. And guess what's going to happen to your attitude? It's so cool. Now, Paul, 1 Corinthians 4 11 through 13, Paul says this, because the Philippians sent him a gift. And Paul was writing him to say, hey, thanks for the gift. This is really cool. But then he says, not that I speak from want. I don't want you to think, you guys, that I was desperate for your gift. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. You guys, if you want your life to shine in this dark world, learn to live with contentment. Do you realize how rare of a, of a thing that is in this world? Paul says, I know how to get along in humble means. Heavens, he's been in jail. I don't know if you can get a whole lot more humble than that. But, but uh, and back, by the way, back then in jails, people didn't get any food unless somebody from outside of jail brought them the food. The, the idea of getting three score, squares a day in jail, that's an American idea, but it was not true back then. He says, but I also know how to live in prosperity. And I actually think that living in prosperity is more difficult than living with humble means because it is so easy to get distracted. And folks, that's where we are. He says, in every, any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of both of having an abundance and suffering need, 
I can do all things through him. Oops. That is really embarrassing. So I can never again tell you to silence your phones, right? So often we jerk this, this uh, uh, verse out of context. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Uh, but this is in the context of learning to live a life of contentment. And in Paul's view, that is an amazing miracle. So, so this little sideline uh, of 6 through 8 is telling us that, look, if you learn to focus on godliness rather than getting rich, you are going to have a blessed life. But now let's go back to 9 and 10 in 1 Timothy 6. He goes back and he says, But those who desire to be, be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I don't know what a pang is, but I think it's something bad. But what Paul is saying, I have seen as a pastor over the last 33 years, is that people get hung up on getting rich. People get hung up on just getting a little bit more. And what happens, I've seen guys and women lose their families through the desire to be wealthy. I've seen them lose their faith through that desire. Paul is saying it's dangerous. Now, we're going to go on to verse 11, which is where things begin to get exciting for me. Paul turns his attention to Timothy. He says to Timothy, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Now, if you read commentaries, of course, they go crazy in trying to discover what the, these things are referring to. I'm a simple guy, and I like to take the nearest antecedent. In other words, what was he talking about right before? He's been talking about the problem of the love of money. And so I think Paul is very simply telling Timothy to flee, run away from the love of money. Question, how do we do that? Stop exposing yourself so much to the media that will inflame your lust for material things. I, I used to be a car nut. I loved cars. So you know what I did every fall? I went out to all the car dealerships to see what was new that fall. And you know what's weird? You know what happened to me? All of a sudden, my car was no good anymore. I had to have a new car. Why? Because if you put wood on a fire, the fire is going to get bigger. If you feed your lust, your lust is going to get stronger. And I'm not just talking about sexual lust. I'm talking about car lust, mechanical porn. You know, reading car and driver is the worst thing you can do if you're a car nut. Watching uh, flip this house is, is house porn. You see, we, we, we think of lust only in sexual terms. Lust is simply a desire that's gotten out of control. That's all lust is. And so some women are into clothes or shoes or guys are into tools or whatever you're into, cars, anything. Whatever is causing you to stumble, 
causing you to long for material things, begin to cut down your exposure to those things. And what I would encourage you to do, quite frankly, is to limit your internet time, limit your television watching time. There's a whole bunch of reasons why we need to do that. And stop window shopping. I'm a, I'm a horrible window shopper. When I, whenever I have time, I like to go looking, you know, go to Home Depot or go to Costco or go to wherever it is, you know, and just, and, and that helps me so much because it helps me all know all of the things that I need to buy. But the biggest way we run away is by setting your mind to other things. And notice the next word in the verse. So cool. Paul says, pursue. Pursue. He gives us six words, and I just want to give you a real quick definition of each of those words. He says, pursue. Let me get to my notes here. Righteousness. Pursuing righteousness is pursuing, treating others with justice and fairness. Righteousness is basically, if, if holiness has to do with our relationship with God, righteousness has to do with how we treat people. And so righteousness is the passion to pe- treat people with justice and fairness, and you might throw in purity there. The next one is godliness. Godliness is such a cool word. It's, it's actually very hard to define But it actually means having that inner response to situations in a way that pleases God. In other words, whenever you're in a situation where you're in an argument or when you're in a a struggle or where you're in a situation, your first thought is, what response will please God? And that response is godliness. Paul goes on, the next word. Faith. We're to pursue faith. And what that means is let your focus be on the things that you cannot see. Remember 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Paul says we walk by faith, not by sight. The dichotomy that Paul sets up is there are things that you can see and there are things that you cannot see. Most of us walk by sight. We respond to this world based on things that we can see. Paul says... Let your focus be on the things that you cannot see. Love, God's kingdom, the coming of Jesus. And we could add a whole bunch of things to that. But basically, live for his kingdom. Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Paul goes on. He says, love. Love others as God has loved you. You guys, in this, in this last week with this tragedy down in Florida, the tragedy has been one bad thing. The conversation that's followed that tragedy has been horrible. Uh, our conversation, our response to situations has to be not only to love the people who were killed... You might say, well, wait, they were gays, they were transgender, they were this or that. They were humans created in the image of God who lost their lives. 
They lost the opportunity to respond to the gospel because somebody chose to kill them. We need to be mourning over that. We need to be grieving that those people, their lives were taken from them. We even need to be grieving over the person who took their lives. Not only that, this lovely young girl, Christina, uh, what's her last name, Grimmy? I don't know if you realize this. I just discovered she was a believer in Jesus Christ, which is exciting. In fact, she has a two-month-old video you ought to look up on YouTube where she's singing uh, In Christ Alone. And, and that's that wonderful hymn that talks about Jesus' victory over death, and we have that victory over death. So we don't have to live in fear. I mean, it just brought tears to my eyes to watch her sing that. Because love has to be... Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, he says, let all that you do be done in love. Steadfastness. We are to pursue a life of consistency. And I don't know about you guys. Do you, do you find that it's easy to fade away from God? <sighs> you know, there's a, there's a hymn... Uh, Come thou fount, you know. And and in the last verse, uh, the writer says, let your grace, Lord, be like a fetter, like a, a, a bonding chain. Bind my wandering heart to thee. You know, we need to pursue consistency in our walk with God. And then gentleness. We need to pursue that spirit of gentleness in everything that we do. So, Let's go on. Paul, he says, Timothy, you need to flee from the love of money and you need to pursue these things in your life. By the way, did you guys get all those down? Um, Just want to make sure. Then he goes on now. This kind of gets cool. Verse 12. He says, fight the good fight of faith. What do you think he means by that? Fight the good fight of faith. Very interesting that In 2 Timothy 4, when Paul's about to die, he says, I have fought the good fight. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, he describes our life as a marathon race, that that we are to run the race that is set before him. Hebrews 12 has that same picture. Uh, Laying aside all the sin that entangles you, run the race that is set before you, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So our lives are described as a battle, Our lives are described as a race. And Paul is challenging us. And and I guess the thing that I want you to see here is you think of things like race and and, and, um, battle. What are the implications of that on your your life? Do you think that's the kind of life that's passive where we're just sitting around waiting for something to happen? It's actually an aggressive life that Paul has for us. I just want to take you right down 1 Corinthians or Philippians 127 through 30. I just want to focus on 127. Now listen to this. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you. Now he's speaking to the whole church that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving, that's fighting, that's struggling together for the faith of the gospel. Because our job, very simply, here at Calvary Chapel, 
is to fill this valley with the teaching of Jesus Christ. That's our, is, that, is that fair to say? That's our job. And it's a battle because there's a whole bunch of people who don't want to hear that. And in the years that I've been in this valley, it's, it's shifted from moderately positive towards the gospel to neutral towards the gospel to hostile towards the gospel. Have you noticed that? It, it's been a dramatic shift. And so a lot of Christians have said, hey, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Guys, we're in a fight. And in case you haven't noticed, when there's a fight, there's usually an opponent. And for us to expect that this life and this job is going to be easy is ridiculous. Oh, for heaven's sakes, I'm going to... I am... I even turned this off. I can't even reject it. Yeah, maybe so. It is an out-of-the-area code, so here, why don't you take that so you can reject it quicker or turn it off or do something with it. Now, I don't even remember what I said. Oh, um, when we present the gospel, we need to be gentle, not aggressive, humble, not arrogant, loving, not mean-spirited or judgmental, But we do need to understand it. Listen to what Jesus said. Hey, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before you. In other words, it actually ought to be a badge of honor that the world is hating us. Now, just real quickly, I think you guys know this, but I wanted to go over who are the enemies in our struggle. We have three essential enemies. Number one, we struggle against the world. And just write down 1 John 2, 15 through 17. The strategy of the world is to distract you. Um, And boy, it works with me. I'm so easily distracted. I'm that kind of dog that's running along, so squirrel, you know, and I'm off and running after something else. I, I can be distracted from things so quickly. And that's the strategy of the world. That's what all advertising is, is to distract you. Right? It's to get you to pursue after things that they want to tell you that you need. Paul says, don't, or John says, don't love the world. And stop loving the things that are in the world because all the things that are in the world are not from the Father, but they're from this world. And it says the world and all of its desires is passing away. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Let's go on. We struggle against our flesh. So that's our inward struggle. The world seeks to distract us Our flesh seeks to dominate us. Our flesh wants control of our lives. That's why the key strategy, we have to walk by the Spirit. We struggle against Satan, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Satan seeks to deceive us. I don't know if you realize this. I hope you do. Do you realize that Satan has no power over you? Do you all understand that? And yet he winds up having a great deal of influence in the lives of many Christians by deceiving them. And that's why we need to put on the full armor of God. And and the first piece of armor is to gird your loins with truth. 
So we need to be armed with the truth so that we can recognize the deception of Satan. Let's go on. Paul goes on to say in verse 13, Take hold. Let's see, where are we? Verse 12, excuse me. He says, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What does it mean to take hold of eternal life? Eternal life is not simply life without end. Eternal life is fundamentally the abundant life that God came to give us. You guys, you can either live your life with the strength of your body, which is on a downward slope for the rest of your life, by the way, if you don't know that. Or you can live your life with the inward life that Jesus has planted in you. That is the eternal life. Paul is saying, grab a hold of that and don't let go of that. Live in that life every day. Live in what Jesus is doing and has done for you and live in that every day. Now, verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, And of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So all of that is this big, hey, Timothy, I'm going to tell you to do something really important. Verse 14, keep the commandment. Actually, that's kind of a letdown after that big buildup. All right, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus and blah, blah, blah. Keep the commandment. And, of course, our our question is... What commandment? Paul doesn't tell us what it is, but he says, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you look at the 10 different commentaries on 1 Timothy, you'll come up with 10 different answers as to what the commandment is. I'll tell you what I think the commandment is, and it's a very simple answer. Man came to Jesus and he says, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, I want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. I think that's the only thing that would fit as the commandment. In other words, it's something that Paul felt, and Paul knew that he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He just wasn't writing this little personal uh, letter to Timothy and somebody said, hey, let's put that in the Bible. No, Paul knew that he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in John 13, 34 through 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You guys, I think Paul is bringing Timothy back to the simplest truth of all the things that we do. What is the most important thing in God's mind? That we love each other. That we love each other in intensity and in spirit and in truth. And not just in words only, but in our deeds. Paul goes on. He says, in the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone dwells in an immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, 
whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So Paul is just putting this commandment in the context of where we are. Christ who died for us, Christ who's coming again, and we are going to be standing with God. What is the thing that we can do right now that will last forever? It is to love. And again, it goes back to that living by faith. That's something you can't see. That doesn't seem very important. But Paul says, and again, if you're taking notes, just write down 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. If I have the greatest spiritual gifts in the world, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. He closes 1 Corinthians 16 by saying, let all that you be done, be done in love. Okay, let's go to 17 through 19. We've got to keep moving because they told me I had to finish 1 Timothy tonight. So we're not going to fail, Pastor Rob. All right. Instructions for the wealthy. Here's what Paul says to Timothy. Timothy, I want you to instruct those who are rich in this present world. By the way, you guys, you know that's us, right? You may be saying, hey, I don't feel very wealthy. I'm still paying on my second car. You know, we're in, in relationship to this world, I don't know what the stats are, but I, I'm pretty sure we're in the top 10% of wealth of the world. All of us who sit right here. I know that's hard to believe because we feel like we're poor in relationship to those above us. But we're, we're pretty well off. Okay. So here's the instructions. Number one, don't be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. You guys, this is so amazing. I, I have met people who have over a million dollars in their retirement fund and they're worried. They're worried that it's not enough. And yeah, if you want to have a 60-foot boat, it probably isn't enough. You know, it's, it's, uh, The nature of people who put their whole hope in wealth is anxiety. That's what you will get every time when you put your hope in the uncertainty of wealth. Because in your mind, no matter how much you have, you will never have enough. So number one, don't be conceited. Don't think you're better than other people because you've got a little bit of money. Or because you're an American and you live in America. And, oh, God bless America. God bless me because I'm an American. I'm a little better than the rest of the world. No. Don't fix your hope on wealth. Instead, fix your hope on God. I don't know where you're looking for your future security. But i got to tell you guys, if it's anywhere else than God, you've put your, your hope in the wrong thing. So Paul says to Timothy... Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Everything you have has come from God. Think how old you are right now. For that many years, God has been supplying you with everything you have to richly enjoy. You don't have to feel guilty about it. You can enjoy it. It's okay. Now, the next set of instructions. Paul says, instruct them to do good. Whenever he talks about doing good, he's talking about helping other people. And he's kind of going to kind of unpack that right now. To be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. 
Guys, if Paul came to us tonight, this is what he'd tell us to do. Say, you guys, I want, I want you to do good. I want you to be rich in good works. In other words, of all the things that people would say about you, make sure that one of the things they say about them is, man, he is generous. She is ready to share. She's ready to give her time, her energy, her money, whatever is needed. That person is ready to give what they have. Paul goes on to say, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of, there's that concept again, so they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, whenever you meet people who are wealthy, this is what I want you to tell them. Interesting, he starts with instructions for slaves. When you meet slaves, tell them to respect their bosses, respect their masters. He closes off by saying, when you meet people who are wealthy, people on the other side of the world, this is what I want you to tell them to do. Then we come to verse 20. And this is so cool. Paul says, O Timothy. And this phrase, if Paul were with Timothy when he was writing, you would picture him embracing him and kind of falling on his shoulder and saying, Oh, Timothy. This is a very intensely personal, in English we call it an interjection. It's just a, it's just an expression that doesn't have any grammatical structure. Oh, Timothy. Paul is closing this letter by talking to his son in the faith. And he says, guard what has been entrusted to you. Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, I've poured my life into you. Guard that. I want you to take just one minute. Think about who has poured their life into you. If you've been around here for a little while, Pastor Rob has poured his life into you. Maybe you had somebody who trained you as a young Christian who discipled you. They poured your life into you. Now, I want you to think of what they've done. This word entrusted means a deposit. Timothy, guard your deposit. Guard the things that have been deposited in your life. Now, let me explain what that means to me. When I was 16 years old, a man who was kind of discipling me uh, taught me to memorize scripture. Taught me to don't just memorize a verse here and there. Memorize chapters. Memorize long blocks of scripture. All my life I've done that. And that has become a foundation not only of my spiritual growth, but it's become a foundation of my preaching, my teaching, my counsel, Because anywhere I go, when I'm talking to people, the Holy Spirit brings up the scriptures that I've memorized. It's just, it's miraculous how that works. So that when I counsel people, I'm not counseling them with my opinion. I'm counseling them with the Word of God. And so all my life, I've done that. But then I find in times when I'm not doing very well, 
I kind of stray away from that. You know how you do that? You kind of get away from stuff that you know works. Guarding is sticking to the basics. Guarding is... What do I need to do to make my spiritual life work? I, I need to be in the Word every day. Do you, do you guys... Is it just me? I mean, you know, I need... But am I in the Word every day? No. I wish I were, doggone I wish I, were, I wish I were just faithful all the time, but I'm not. There are times when I get busy and I kind of stray away from that. And Paul is saying, Timothy, guard what's been entrusted to you. Stick with the stuff you know works. And here's the problem. The more life goes on... The more we get into these interesting discussions of when is Christ coming or who is the church, who is Israel, all of these highfalutin discussions that get us all excited about different things and we forget the basics of walking with Christ. Now look at what Paul says after this and this will help you understand what he's saying. Avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. Paul is saying to Timothy, don't get caught up in all of this stuff. Be kind of a simpleton. Focus on the basics of walking with Christ. Dig in the word. Pray. Let yourself be filled with the Holy Spirit on a day-by-day basis. Walk with God throughout every day. Surrender everything to God. Is, is that hard? No. Is it easy to avoid? Yes. And so Paul says to Timothy as he's closing this amazing letter... All of the things that he's saying, he says, Timothy, hey, I poured my life into you. Guard that stuff. Don't let go of it. Don't let it go. Don't get off into other things. And he closes, he says, which some have professed. In other words, getting into this knowledge. And thus have gone astray from the faith. only two directions you can go in this life. You can either walk the narrow path towards a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ or you can be on the broad path that's taking you away from Jesus Christ. At any given moment of your life, you're on one path or the other. There's no middle ground. I loved a cliche a youth pastor once gave me. He said, if you're coasting, it means you're going downhill. So no coasting in our faith. Now, I need a break from Bible study. It's kind of gotten boring for me. I need to take a break and maybe... No, no, no. I've been praying for a while and nothing's happening. I'm going to stop praying. No, we don't do that. We're in a fight. We're in a race. And we need to keep pressing on for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul closes this letter by saying, Grace be with you. What a neat close. Father, I just pray that you'd help us to take whatever of this chapter you want to apply to our lives. I pray that you'd help us to understand what you want us to do with this truth. And Lord, again, as we've talked about so often, I pray that we would not just be hearers of the word, but we'd be doers of the word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.